Hi, everyone, and welcome to Wise Woman Podcast, featuring leading voices in 2019, supporting women to fully show up, connect to their feminine authenticity and truth. I am your host, Erin Rachel Doppel, bringing light to the marriage between Eastern practices and Western psychology, while encouraging you to show up for yourself and the world around you. May this be your time to shine. May you show up. I'm super pumped about today's guest. We have Lola Wright, a fierce and loving community leader supporting personal transformation in service of collective awakening, CEO and spiritual director of Bodhi Center, a global center for consciousness, engaging changing agents and explorers in Chicago, around the world and founder of Normal White People, a platform designed to deconstruct racism among white identified people. Wild and passionate mom of four. Lola, hi, welcome. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here with you. We're so happy to be with you too. How are you today? Great. I'm feeling alive and grateful for, yeah, this day. Amazing. Amen. A woman. I'll have some of that. How beautiful. How did you begin this great work? Mm. Well, I come from a very curious family. My grandparents were devout social justice Catholics that were also deep Rumi meditators. My grandfather studied with Thich Nhat Hanh. They ended up retiring to sacred land in Cerritos, New Mexico. So I was raised with the paradigm of traditional religion with a really um, social conscience and then a deep curiosity for other traditions. So that was very much in my childhood. In the year 2000, I met Michael Beckwith, who's the founder of the Agape International Spiritual Center in LA. I was 20 years old. I had no idea who he was. I saw him speak in Palm Springs, California. I had literally won like a lottery into, at the time, an internet radio station, which was like this big deal in the year 2000. And uh, it was a three-year group that I got to participate in with Marianne Williamson and Wayne Dyer and Deepak Chopra, like all of these big iconic figures now that, you know, in the year 2000, were just starting to emerge in a big way. And I heard Michael Beckwith speak and I just started weeping. And I had the thought, like, I don't know who this human is, but whatever that is that he's doing, I'm here for that. And it forever altered my life. It then took me 20 years to get to where I am today through a lot of resistance and et cetera, et cetera. But it was a transformative moment. And it really spawned the life that I now have. What a journey. Oh, that's so incredible to be in the same room as so many spiritual educators who really are shaping, I would say, the modern day spiritual movement. Yeah, I was I was I think I was 20 at the time and I was, a, you know, a young mom. I, I first got pregnant when I was 18. So by the time I met Michael Beckwith, I had two little kids under the age of three, I think. And my life felt really hard. Like there was a lot of drama in my life. The circumstances were really challenging. And it was like a it was like a big glass of water. And what I understand now is he was really speaking about universal principles that gave me a window into a life of freedom that I was not experiencing at the time. And 
the vibration and the energy of his words had such a quantum impact on me that it really gave me a vision for my life that was deeply moving and inspiring. And as I said, it then took me 20 years to actually reconcile the gap between that vision that I caught in 2000 and how it could actually be manifested in my life. It, you know, it took a lot of practice, but here I sit and it, it actually feels like my life today is reflective of the vision I caught in his midst 20 years ago. Wow. That sparkly, tiny, tiny glimpse of the future of the highest dream. That's so incredible. And I feel like we sometimes through meditation, through prayer, through deep connection, we have those small glimmers of what we truly like is our highest work. Mm -hmm. And how is that manifested now? I mean, you're doing amazing, amazing work. Yeah, I, I spent most of my career in banking and real estate. I left Bank of America in 2012. And at the time, you know, I, I basically said to my husband, I said, look, he had just finished grad school. I had been like in this hustle mode for a long time. And I said to him, I would rather live in a cardboard box than keep this whole charade going. Like it's exhausting. It is so not what I'm here for. And we really did, like, we had no game plan. I mean, we had no savings. He had just launched his business, which was not profitable right out of the gate. And I was, you know, our primary income earner. At that point, we had four kids. And uh, it wasn't like, I don't recommend that path, but it was, it, it just what was, what was, it was calling me to just sort of lay it all down. And um, I was, you know, very involved in this place called Bodhi Spiritual Center as a community member. And Bodhi was looking for a director of youth and family. And I thought, I think I'm here for that. And my mom was basically like, that's a terrible idea. It's a small nonprofit that has very limited ability to pay any kind of money. And you have a hard time spending lots of uh, time with your own kids. Why would you want to go lead a youth and family program? And I just was like, I don't know, I'm here for it. And uh, one thing led to another. And now I'm the CEO and spiritual director in a way that like, I never could have anticipated. And um, it definitely feels like a self-expression. So in the beginning part of you really stepping into who you are at your core, you're maintaining this very corporate life, Bank of America, nine to five, like very masculine, maybe stale energy. Mm. How did you shift into what you're doing now? Were there specific rituals, dreams, practices? Yeah. I mean, I did a lot of forgiveness work. Um, it became clear to me that I was carrying a lot of resentment towards my older children's father. And so there was a, there was a, a hardness to me, like, um, and it was really formed out of my own survival instincts and it was necessary and it served me, but it wasn't the kind of receptivity that I knew I needed to step into to allow this new vision to come forward. So lots of forgiveness work, lots of meditation, um, and just trusting ever more in what I would call like the unseen realm. I mean, I think one of the conditions of our culture and society is to believe most fully in that which we can see. 
And as I oftentimes say, like that, what you can see is the smallest of slivers of existence and to actually rest in a presence in a grace in um, something that is beyond the five senses. That was really my practice. And, you know, I got, I, I, I was devoted to affirmations, which can sound sort of silly. I think people can think of like Stuart Smalley. I don't know if you remember Stuart Smalley from Saturday Night Live. Like, I'm strong enough. I'm great enough. And doggone it, people love me. And it can be sort of goofy and silly, but there's such great power in it. You know, when I was a little girl, my dad would oftentimes sort of poke me because I would say, I'm, I'm hungry. And he would say, well, hello, hungry. Nice to meet you. I'm Pat. But it was a really early way of interrupting who I was claiming myself as. And I started to unravel all of the false beliefs, all of the false narratives, and begin to orient my mind to this high and holy idea of my inherent indwelling nature. And to, to really keep falling in love ever more with my essence was just an incredibly healing process for me. And that's how I feel whenever I walk into Bodhi Spiritual Center. And, and for anyone who's based in Chicago or the Midwest, you have to check out Lola speaking at Bodhi. It's it's like a deep exhale. Like it, it feels, I love what you said, like claiming who you really are. And I think when you walk into that space, it's a physical action of claiming who you are. Like you take time to connect to the sacred. Yes. I feel like that is one of the great restorations needed and wanted in the human experience right now is a reclamation of your inherent goodness. We have spent so much time, energy, money, attention on the need to fix ourselves through products, services, like some kind of outsourcing. And it's like, there's actually a, an aspect to your being that has never been hurt, harmed, or hindered. And when you can reorient yourself around that and remember your inherent goodness, it, it's like a deep salve to the soul. So for anyone who's listening right now and they're maybe feeling anxious or sad or, or misaligned, what are some practices they can do right now to help them reconnect? I am a master practitioner of breathing. And it sounds silly and simple, but I honestly think that the vast majority of human beings are walking around in a very constricted place and space. And as a former vocalist, it's like, let us take a deep inhale in through the nose and just see if you can expand your breath into your belly, into your diaphragm. Physiologically, what that gives you access to is something completely new and different. So it sounds simple, it sounds easy, it's free, and you can do it anywhere. So I, I'm always um, an invitation for three deep belly breaths in through your nose, expand your belly, and do an audible exhale. And to do that three times, can reset your physiology and give you access to greater creativity. So that's one. I'm a big believer in the practice of what I call presencing. So body sensation, feeling state, next thought. Body sensation, the hack for that is 
noticing in your body, you know, the words that may be used end with ing. So it's not the story about what's occurring in your body, but like in this now moment, I'm noticing swirling in my belly, tightening in my shoulders, buzzing in my forehead. My feeling state is scared and joy. And I'm having the thought, I hope this is of service to people. The great practice in body sensation, feeling state, next thought is to get related to what's here now. So much of our suffering is based in what has happened or what we anticipate will happen. And the real practice of meditation is to get into this now moment. You know, for the vast majority of us in this now moment, all is well. Where we get ourselves worked up is when we're anticipating and sort of generating anxiety. As you know, I was a single mom for a number of years, and there were lots of t- there was lots of time where, you know, some real basic things were difficult to figure out. And one of my great practices in times where it felt like I was really lean on resources would be to open my cabinets and focus on what I did have rather than what I did not have. You know, where is my focus of attention? Okay, what I do have is two cans of black beans. What I do have is one clove of garlic. What I do have is a saute pan. Like it sounds very um, basic, but oftentimes when we are in a fear based, anxiety provoked space, um, we're in our reptilian brain, in our survival state of consciousness. And it's just about soothing that one and saying, it's okay. In this now moment, all is well. Let's take a breath. Noticing fear is here, having the thought there's not enough and trusting that what is right before me is adequate. You know, so it's really like I'm in a constant narration with myself, <laughs> you know, like all is well, all is well. Those practices are stunning and beautiful and incredibly, even right now I was going through it with you and I feel, I feel totally aligned. Mm. I, I just got back from leading this incredible spiritual retreat in Tulum, Mexico And the participants kept coming up to me and saying, oh, I feel so good. I feel so relaxed. I think it's because of this, this, and this. And I said, your feet are in the sand. You're hearing the ocean. Like it's the most basic thing possible. You're in nature. You're connecting to this energy around you. Sure, we're meditating and we're doing yoga and workshops on positive psychology and and other ways for you to connect. But the most basic thing we can do, and especially, I mean, this is so probably relevant to you and your audience at Bodhi, we live in a box in a city. Mm-hmm. Like we live in a, I mean, it's just such a concept to get outside, be in nature, breathe mm-hmm. deeply, let your feet plant in the sand or on the grass or in the mm-hmm. dirt. I think this is one way to really quickly shift and reground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My, my husband spent um, a fair amount of time at Plum Village, which is Thich Nhat Hanh's monastery in France. And one of the great practices that he and I are both pretty devoted to is seeing all of life as a meditation, not just like sitting in the lotus position 
with cute pants and a nice top and your green drink at your side. Like that's actually not what, what engages meditation. It's literally just the conscious use of your breath at any given moment, whether you're in a traffic jam, whether you're waiting in line at Starbucks or whether you're in your yoga class, like you have the capacity to invoke the presence of stillness in any moment. And, uh, Lots of industries are now being built on the consumption of meditation. And uh, I just want to always remind people that you don't need the perfect environment to create and invoke stillness. It's actually always right where you are. I love that so much. And it's been, um, I think it was last summer when I shared like a deep meditation workshop at Bodhi and it attracted the most genuine and excited and intriguing, diverse and engaging audience. And these were the topics that really came up. Sure, we were practicing, you know, mm-hmm. maybe some more advanced practices or maybe things you wouldn't normally see in Chicago or or in North America. But you're so you're so right. Coming back to that basic, taking a step back. Oh, I love it. It's so healing. Mm-hmm. It is healing. And you know, as as a mother, I watch my kids, you know, my, my kids are 21, 19, 10, and seven. And to see even like my 10 year old invoke her breath, you know, like almost like habitually because she's just been raised in it. And so it's like, when she gets all riled up about whatever may be occurring, it's like, Hey, let's just take a deep breath. You know, really Caroline, take a deep breath in through your nose and do a full exhale and let's take a sip of water. I like my great tools are breath and water. If you have those two things, all is well. <laughs> You're so right. I was, yeah, my call right before the recording of this was with a client who just got back from, she was feeling very anxious and she just got mm. back from a wine tasting where she was on vacation and like she was drinking wines in Sonoma. And I said, like, you're hungover and you're dehydrated. Like you need to drink some water. Yeah. yeah. Like you're, you're, I love the Instagram post. It's like you're a, a house plant with more complicated emotions. Like you need mm. sunlight and you need water and it's a basic need. And of course it's coming back to basics. And for anyone who's listening, I do have seven spiritual practices. I'll add it in the footnotes. You can download it and check it out and see if those seven spiritual practices, which greatly serve me, maybe they also serve you. Mm. And Lola, you're doing so much amazing work right now. What are you most, what are some of the things you're most excited about? One of the things that I feel most connected to and and like karmically drawn and impelled to support people in is, you know, there's a lot of focus on personal transformation, which I think is absolutely essential. And I firmly believe that personal transformation is ultimately to be of service to collective awakening. And so um, I'm really interested in how do we map this practice of waking up to systems and structures that we're deeply entrenched in. And one of the systems that I think we're deeply entrenched in is the system of racism and um, specifically white supremacy, which can be a you know a collection of words that really trigger people and freak people out. And again, it's like, hey, just take a breath. Like as one of my you know, friends um, of mine oftentimes says, he he spent years in the nation of Islam. He always says, you know, Lola, don't get so worked up about racism. It's just a business. It's nothing personal. 
And it's like, wow, you know, I really, I chew it on that. You know, it's just a business. It's not personal, but these things feel deeply personal. And then we get triggered and reactive and we have an incapacity to move through them. So about a year ago, I founded a body of work called Normal White People, which is a platform designed to support white identified people in developing their racial consciousness. And I think that's, that's something I'm really, really passionate about. I mean, I now bring it into corporations and organizations. I lead, you know, classes and workshops online and in person. And, you know, one, one of the things I oftentimes say is I spent 20 years really shouting at white people about the state of race in America. And what I found is that like shouting at people is not particularly effective you know, it turns out like most people don't respond well to be shout being shouted at. And of course, I say that somewhat in jest because I was not literally shouting. But I really, you know, that the conversation of race in America is really up. I think that, you know, the exciting thing about where we are in the state of this country right now is that there's a willingness to have some uncomfortable conversations in ways that we have not historically been willing to have them, at least in dominant culture and society. And so to really be a place and space of exploration, to uh, look at real and untold American history, you know, the stuff that we weren't really uh, provided and encouraged to explore in school, to examine our personal unconscious biases, which we all have, and then to take personal responsibility, like, wow. So I'm becoming aware that there has been some systemic injustice in our society. Who can I be to support the dismantling of that, to support the disrupting of that? How does it live in me? How do I further it? And how can I interrupt it? And I, you know, I, I just finished a four-week online version of the course like a week or so ago. And every person that took the course basically said in a follow-up, like, I feel like every white person should have to take this course. Like, it was just so illuminating. And yeah, I just feel really committed to that. I mean, I, I, it's been something I've been deeply interested in since I was little. I had sort of an obsession with race as, you know, a 10 year old. And, you know, now it's deeply personal. I mean, two of my four kids are mixed race, black. And so not only, is it of great intellectual curiosity, but I have a deep personal investment, you know, watching my 21 and 19 year old navigate systems and structures that were not designed with them in mind. Absolutely. How do you, how do you educate them? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I recently had an experience where, you know, my 19 year old son, um, is six foot five and played, you know, football and basketball at Oak Park and River Forest High School and is like a has a very stunning stature when he walks into a space and he has brown skin and big curly hair and you know people have whatever experiences they have with that. Some people are deeply attracted to that. Some people are intimidated by that. But I recently needed to return something to a boutique in Oak Park. And I asked him to return the item for me. And I had the presence of mind to call the boutique in advance and say, hey, I want you to know 
that I've asked my son to come in and return an item for me. He's six foot five. He has big curly hair and brown skin. I did that knowing that, you know, the, the lived experience that he can have at times is, you know, um, suspicion, um, accusation, just by his beingness. And I was unwilling to set him up in a way that he would have an unfriendly encounter. And so those are the kinds of things I don't think people really realize. Like if you, if, if you do not have um, children or family or a lived experience of being uh, mistreated on a regular basis simply by your personhood, then you don't necessarily realize that those are the considerations that I feel I have to take into mind as a mother. You know, so they're just different conversations that I've had to have with my 21 year old and my 19 year old that um, I think most white identified parents of white identified children never consider. That is a incredibly powerful story. And then did your son continue to have a positive experience when he returned the item? It was. Yeah, but I, I don't you know, who's to who's to say what may have happened. Um, if I hadn't done some of that pre-work, so to speak. So, you know, I mean, I recently said in an organization I did work with that wanted to have an explicit conversation about race within their organization, you know, one of the executive leaders said, you know, I can appreciate the interest in this, but I don't know that I share it. And I shared that story with the leadership team. And I said, you know, as a mom, I'm really counting on leaders like you in organizational settings to engage in this conversation with curiosity and responsibility because my children are at an age where they're starting to enter the workforce. And if people like you aren't willing to take responsibility for this with some level of curiosity, I notice I feel scared as a mother that my kids are going to have a challenging experience in a way look, I don't, I, I don't have any problem with my kids having challenging experiences, but I'd like, I'd like there to be some mindfulness around our unconscious biases so that, you know, we begin to take responsibility for the ways that we can impact and influence culture and society. You know, I, I, the definition that I use for leadership is one who influences, and we all have the capacity to influence, whether it's in our family system, whether it's in our neighborhood, whether it's in our organization. And um, when you become aware of your capacity to influence, you can actually support the evolutionary impulse of humanity in a positive, affirmative direction. And I feel like ultimately that's really what we're all here for. It's such an important and interesting conversation and a lot of you know, I was really looking into this conversation of world peace when I was at Columbia and I was hired by the lead professor of my program to look into this concept of world peace. And the findings were so, again, basic, so mm. basic. Have friends who look different than you. Mm. Have friends who pray to a different God than you. Mm. Or have lovers or bosses mm -hmm. or coworkers. Have mm -hmm. people in your community who do not match your same thoughts and feelings. Yes. And this is how we heal. It's like a deep yeah. breath. Like, yes. of course. Yeah, I just um, did a TEDx Chicago talk and 
you know, the premise of the talk was basically like the future of community in a post-religious society. What are the gifts that come from the dismantling of religious frameworks? And I don't say that to suggest that anybody should live that leave their, you know, religious tradition, but the statistics show that there is a great reorganization that is occurring in culture and society. And I think, you know, certainly what I've seen at Bodhi is that when you cultivate community across seeming lines of difference, there's an opportunity to confront tribal agreements and systems of separation. And if the people who are showing up are willing to do that deep work, you can really provoke unexpected encounters that result in in I noticing our shared humanity. I think a lot of you and I agree that a lot of this work occurs on the basic, uh, the core level. And then something else that I think is a really interesting conversation right now is media and news sources. So I know for me and majority of my community, if something is happening and I open up I go online or I look at the news and I see that there is something going on in the Middle East, then I am more likely to go on Instagram and look at my friends' accounts or people who are hashtagging specific things and see what they're saying about what's occurring in their country or in their homeland or what's the conversation piece out there. So my thought is that, you know, the source of information is always the key, the key component. And I don't watch much TV because I think that so much of of it is based on drama and I just don't have much of an interest in drama. Um, I, I too use social media as a source for information, but primarily because I follow people who I really deeply trust as sources, you know? And so I think that it's like, (laughs) like I have family members who will post things on social media and I'm like, if you just took two seconds to vet that information, you would swiftly realize that the information you just shared is completely inaccurate. And so it's, it's, I really do think it's like, it's important whether we're talking about news and current events or whether we're talking about deep ancient wisdom truths, like just know where you're getting your information from, you know, like actually I would say, especially in the, you know, I think because the psycho-spiritual world has become such a hot business, I will oftentimes see like social media influencers say things that are like a misunderstanding of these deep ancient wisdom truths. And it's sort of like, just be mindful that you don't go to a workshop one weekend and then think you can teach the workshop the next weekend kind of thing. And so I think it's like, no matter what the topic or the subject area is, Let us just be mindful and vigilant around our sources. Absolutely. And if you personally know your sources and if you're vetting properly and even what you're choosing to share, share from a place of truth, share from a place of authenticity, recognize there's so many people looking. I mean, these, yeah, there's so many youth out there who are just looking at what you're posting, share authentic content. Yeah. And I always think like, you know, if I were to lay my body down today and someone were to do an audit of my social media feed, would the net experience be life-giving or life-taking? Like, would the net experience of that audit be 
enlivening or depleting. And I am ultimately most committed to being a presence that contributes to greater aliveness. Before I post anything, I always ask myself, is this of highest good for myself? And is this of highest good for those around me? Because the last thing we want to experience is a vulnerability hangover. The last thing we want to experience is to share something that is super far connected from the truth. That's why I'm actually really into, uh, it's always from real life. You know, you share your life credibility and then I'll share a lot of the commonalities of my clients. I'm experiencing this. This client asked me this, this really served them. Maybe it will also serve you. It's a very interesting space to be in. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you. And even, you know, when, when I just have a, a desire to talk about some of the most inflammatory topics in the human experience. And so even that, it's like, how do you have conversations about race, gender, orientation, class from a place of curiosity as opposed to, uh, to a defensive closed posture? Uh, a client recently came to me and said, um, I work with a lot of clients who want to kind of build a one-on-one -on -one coaching business or life strategist business. And I'm starting to train people in these practices and, and offer a certificate. So somebody came to me and said, I want to share something, but I don't know, like I can't always connect to see if it's too vulnerable or if it is of highest good. And I said, how is your posture when you talk about this? Like if you're talking about this you know, maybe this trauma or this anxiety or this obstacle and your shoulders are rolled forward and you're really quiet, you're looking down and your neck is caved in. Don't talk about it. You're not in that mm. place of open self-expression. If you're naturally, your shoulders are rolled back, your heart is to the heavens, you're speaking from a mm. place of groundedness. So I always think, look at your body. How are you connecting to the material that you're sharing? It's such a quick rule of thumb. Um, yeah. I mean, it's always such an important technique. Social media. I feel like I always talk about social media in these podcasts. It's such a hot topic. Yeah. I really love that idea of, is your heart to the heavens? Like that's such a beautiful use of language and such powerful imagery. You know, like what I love about that is Oftentimes we've, you know, especially I would say in, in the Christian tradition, there's been this sort of morose um, you know, sort of collapsed, uh, body language. And I really love that idea of really opening and rising up. Like when I'm in, um, like a reverential devotional practice, I love to raise my head and, and it really, it, your body is such a powerful kinesthetic tool. So to literally embody that, which you desire is, um, just very mystical. I love that you said that. I love, I love how you put it as well. So Lola, if you had the ears of all the women in the world, what are some words you would like to share with them? My invitation is just own your glory. May you be like radically celebratory of yourself. May you be your greatest ally, your greatest advocate. May you fall madly in love with yourself such that you understand that celebrating and sharing your genius, your brilliance, your um, glory is actually something that becomes more and more natural and easy. Like, I really love this idea of people celebrating themselves and uncollapsing the notion 
that as you say yes to your most mystical, magical, brilliant self, that that absolutely does not have to be a hindrance to anyone else. In fact, it's a great invitation for others to step into their most glorious self. So I just really, that's my invitation for women, like own your power, own your beauty, own your magnificent and magnificence and like let go of any apologetic tendency for it. Lola, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Everyone, please comment below which rituals, which practices resonated with you. What words did Lola say that helped you feel calm, centered, and present? As always with podcasts, we need high rating subscribers and comments to receive good standing, to continue sharing wise words with women all around the globe. So please comment, subscribe, rate us, share. We love hearing from you. Big love and looking forward to chatting again next week. Thanks so much.